Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, please turn them to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter. We're going to work uh, on an overview of the first chapter this morning. We did an overview of the book when we began a couple weeks ago. And then last week we looked at um, the second verse. This morning, uh, the emphasis is going to be verse 3. But verse 3, as Paul exclaims, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, is the basis for chapter 1, and it is the basis of what I want, uh, what's been laid on my heart this morning. So if you will, follow along. We're going to read the entirety of the first chapter. I don't often do that, but I want these words to be close into your hearts this morning as we go through what Paul has got for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So beginning with verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that in the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, so that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we humbly bow before you and the truth that we find here in this passage. I, I exclaim with Paul, the more I understand it and the longer I live and the more truth that you give us from Scripture, I, with Paul, exclaim, blessed be God. Blessed be God for the works that you've done on our behalf. Father, be with these people this morning. Uh, You know each and every heart. 
that is with us this morning, you know the depth of their need, you know the week that they've had, what they're going through, the relief that they need. Father, will you just meet them where they're at? Will you give them your truth? Will you encourage them with this truth? Will you strengthen the bond that you have with them this morning through this truth? Will you encourage them and lift them and sanctify them with your truth? Father, go beyond my simple words this morning and speak directly to the heart of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me in that. It's quite a long passage, and we'll spend the next few weeks getting through it. But as we do, I will remind you that this epistle holds much truth for the church, so much truth for the church, theological truth, gospel truth, practical wisdom for everyday life, and it has at its core and for all of its foundation. This is the key and central point. It is salvation. And it is God's perspective on salvation. In fact, in the first chapter and theme throughout the entirety of this epistle, it gives us the magnitude and majesty of God's work in salvation. God's work in salvation. And this is going to be our central theme, as I said, for the next few weeks. Because I know that when you know that it is God who has saved you and saved me, that we take great strength in that. We take great strength in that. The better we know, um, as we come to the end, we're going to speak about one of the truth that flows out of this passage, but I hearken to it now. Theology leads to doxology. Theology is understanding right doctrine from Scripture that gives us. Doxology is giving glory to God. The more we know about God, and this has been a central theme since I've stood on this pulpit, the more the church understands about God, the more that we want to praise God. In fact, when we know God rightly, we will exclaim with Paul, Blessed be God and what he has done on our behalf. It would be a lot like, and there's really nothing to compare it to. I tried to come up with an illustration this morning, but... Uh, there's, it's, it's hard to come up with one as big as salvation in God because there is not one. So all, all of them will fall short, but it would be like being able to speak with the Shah Jahan. You know who he is, right? I'll say his name again. The Shah Jahan. None of you know who that is, right? He, he's famous because he built a tomb for his wife in 1632. It took 11 years to build this tomb. It wasn't just any wife. It was his favorite wife that he built a tomb for, Right? It's the Taj Mahal. Oh, right. It's a big tomb. I've been there like five times, and it's a magnificent thing. It's made of white marble, and marble in India is almost free, but it, it's 43 acres of white marble. It's huge, and it's beautiful, and it's infinitely great. It's magnificent, and you look at it. It should rightly be called one of the seven wonders of the world, and you look at it, and you say to yourself, how did he ever build something like this? It is magnificent. It, I never get tired of looking at it. Each time we take a group to India, we end our trip with that because it's so magnificent. And it stands in direct opposition to the poverty in India. So it's, for me, it's just a little bit like that. We get to consult God on his major work of salvation by hearing God's words directly to us, his perspective on that salvation. It gives us the sovereignty of God and salvation. That is, from our perspective looking up here to God, we are Christian worry warts a lot of the time. We're the most feeble of wusses about our own religion. 
Can I say wusses in church? I can say that in church. If not, my mom would be grabbing my ear right now, even from 1,100 miles away. We are. We can be pitiful sometimes with our, with our waving and our waning, but we need to believe the promises of God. And so Paul gives us this liturgy directly from God's perspective about salvation. And what we see it in is his sovereignty. It's happened. It's, it's all of God's doing through all of history. And I'm sure you struggle with your salvation at different times. I think if I was a pastor writing a book, and there's been many, much ink spilled on this, but that is the top question we get as pastors often is, how do I have that insurance? And I always say you need to know who God is. It's based and founded in who God is and not who you are because you're not good enough, and we intimately in our hearts know that if the salvation was up to us, we couldn't hold on to it. And if we could lose our salvation, surely we would. And if we couldn't lose it, we might sell it to somebody for less than what we gave for it. But that's not how it works. It's all the act and plan of God. I remind you again, Calvin's words, as he said, God has created everything that he's created as the grand stage on which he carries out the redemption of man. It's all for that purpose. And the central point of that purpose is what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. It all hinges on that date that God brought it all together. And secondarily to that is the result of Christ's work on the cross, and that is the church. That is what this passage is telling us. That is what it's giving us. So do you know why we struggle with assurance? Because you're thinking about it as if you've earned it that you have to be good enough or that it might be able to lose it, that you might make some mistake or that you're struggling with some sin and you slip and God just just waiting, you know, to zappo, you're out. But it doesn't work like that because you're looking at it from the city of man looking up to God. So you rightfully get these things disconnected. You rightfully struggle with these truths. And if you see salvation from a worldly perspective alone, you're going to falter and struggle. And believe me, you're going to fail, beloved, but God never fails, beloved. God never falters. Ephesians is being written just to give us that truth that this is based in who God is and what God has done, not who we are and what we've done. So here's the issue this morning. And you know this happened a couple weeks ago to me, a person I was who knows me pretty well. I was having uh, some discussion over dinner with them, and, and that person looked at me, and we were talking about some cultural issue. And I said of the cultural issue, and I, it's, it just, it's not even important what cultural issue it was at the time, but I said of that cultural issue that those people committing those acts, if they knew what God thought about those acts, they would never commit the acts that they were committing because God doesn't like those acts. And the lady I was having dinner with looked at me and says, this is the problem with you. Sometimes that can be a problem with you. In reality, you think and see everything through the lens of the Bible. And she immediately thought she had offended me, but I took it as a compliment. And there's the struggle, isn't it? It's the center of, of, of that retort she made to me as the basis of all of our struggles. As Christians, you too often get caught up in two different realities. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, wrote in the middle of the 4th century, or late in the 4th century, he lived to the middle of the 5th century. In his book, one of his most famous books, The City of God, he wrote these words, contrast two cities, the city of God and the city of man. 
The city of God is the city of heaven, he says, the eternal Jerusalem on the next life. The city of God is invisible to us here. It is not of this earth. It is of the other world, he says. But in contrast to the city of God is the city of man, and it is evil. It's destined to decline and to fail. It was a city of the earth. And that, by the way, example had been seen in Rome and in its empire. Although seeing the city of man as evil, Augustine nevertheless realized that for as long as he was on this earth, he was a citizen of the city of man. He stipulated that although the city of earth was very opposite, the city of heaven, it was a reality that people must face in this place. He wished that people engage the city of man, not just as an experience of pain, but as an opportunity for Christian activity. That's the way we see it today, isn't it? But it's in that struggle because we still live in the city of man and we're dreaming and living and hoping for the city of God, right? The, God, the work that God's done in us. In fact, Augustine would go on to say that we are, are, are people at some point the most miserable because we understand and we've tasted the heaven realities that God has given us through the scriptures, but yet we still live in a world and we long for the heavenly realities to be in our present, but we still live in this world where we have to deal with with the death and the disease and the destruction of sin. And it's in that tussle, that toss back and forth, that contrast, that place we live every day. We go to work, we see it on the news, we come to church, we worship something totally different. We, we're bathed in the city of man all week long and we come, but we maybe do our Bible study or Bible reading during the week and we're bathed in the city of God. And you see the, you see the pull, you see the forces there, Right? They take place. That contrast between the city of God and the city of man is what causes you to wane, to worry, to assume the worst about life sometimes and salvation. And how will it all work out? And it causes you to question God and not believe God. If God said it will happen, I promise it will happen, though. Because when we focus too much on the city of man and the city of God becomes dimmer, the more we focus on the city of man. So here's my pastoral warning to you this morning. The city of God is all that God is doing, and if you're doing something different today, you will be ashamed on the day of judgment, ultimately. The city of God is all that God is doing, and if you're doing something different, you will be ashamed on the day of judgment. Because when you look from this world at that world, these promises seem too heavenly, too lofty, they won't even seem practical to you at some point if you view them from here looking up, if that's your central focus. What's the fix for that? What changes that? What can make us long even more for the city of heaven and even live in this life, the city of man, with more hope and more joy? That is to focus on the spiritual blessings that come from the city of God. That is what Paul exclaimed this morning in these words. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And that's where we're, why we need to do an overview on this, because these blessings just fall as we go through this text. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Everything that Christ has earned on our behalf, God is blessing us with. That is not something to me at times when I deal with the world, it's almost like that's not real, but it's real. It is God's promise to us. It is God looking down from heaven saying, son or daughter, this is all I've ever done. This is what I want is to be 
redeemed and re- you to be redeemed and reconciled to me. And this is what all my work is for. This is what Jesus' life was for. This is everything. And I've done it before the foundation of the world. It was not an afterthought. I've done it, and it's been in my mind. I've known you before you were even known in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He chose us before the foundations of the world. And in this first section, I don't want to get past this because if you'll just mark in your text or mark on your notes this morning, we're going to look at these three sections in the coming days. But we see God's work throughout verses 3 through 11. But we see God the Father in verses 3 through 6a. We see God the Son in verses 6b through 11 and then 11 through 14, or excuse me, through 10, and then 11 through 14, we see the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul always brings the Trinity into this. It's the three persons in one. It's the three natures that we needed to see to represent what salvation was going to be to us. We see God the Father doing and and planning all this before the foundation of the world. We see the Son and His redemptive work on the cross of Calvary as He came in out of heaven And he died on the cross of Calvary because God is just and we needed a payment for our sins because all sin ultimately must be paid for. So he's blessed us with all these heavenly blessings. And then the Spirit comes in and assures us of all those things. And our assurance only grows the more we focus on these things. You pick it up there in verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to make us holy and blameless. This was done, and the motivation there in the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this was according to the purpose of his will. And let me tell you something about God's will. It's greater than any will that's ever been. He has more power than anybody ever has had. And he will bring everything in his will to pass. That's the glorious reality of this. It's not my will. Of course, in understanding it, from my perspective looking up, I would always want to be saved, but I wouldn't have a clue about how to do that. But God has put that together in a perfect package, and he's done it before the foundation of the world, and he's done it for me and for you. Beloved, he's done it, and it's yours. He has done it through his son, Jesus Christ, and you don't have to wax or wane. It's not in your strength. It's in his strength. It's not in your knowledge or your intellect. It's in his knowledge and intellect, and it's always been there. You can't take it out. He's going to break Bring it to pass. It is the plan before the foundation of the world and will be till the summation of all things what he's doing in Jesus Christ. I I cannot express to you, my words are too simple and they're going to be throughout this passage, but this is what I know, that when we go back and we look at words like chosen and predestined and holy and blameless, that there's going to start a fire in your soul about what God's done. I told the Sunday school class this morning that I live by something, or I try to. I fail like everybody else in doing everything that I feel like I was called to do, but you're immortal until the day you die, and you can be as bold as your faith will allow you because God has a will for you, and he's worked that out in Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid, Christian. Don't be fearful, Christian. Don't be faithless, Christian. Don't wane and wax. God's will is being done in your life, and he will bring it to the pass. Of course, verse 6 starts, this is the praise <clears throat> to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, it's all of him. It's what we, not, we didn't deserve one iota of it. Grace, by definition, 
is being given something we did not deserve. That is grace. And what is that that we did not deserve? Do you see it in the middle of verse 6? He has blessed us in the beloved. And I'm telling you that we being blessed in Jesus Christ is the central point of the truth of this, that he has joined us together with his son and is making us holy and blameless before him so that we can stand in his presence and receive these blessings. In him we have redemption through the blood. That is the blood that was spilled 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses. It was all according to his grace and to his will which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, this is all as if it's already taken place. It's written like that because it has, because God has promised it. It's as good as already done, even though we haven't taken full possession of it yet. I'm so far out of my notes, I don't know where I'm at this morning. He's making it known to us. Verse 9 turns, and verses 9 and 10, I think, are some of the sweetest Verses, well, maybe 18 as we get to look at that more today. But verses 9 and 10 tell us what the plan is. And listen, we get so wrapped up in the city of man that we, we forget this. It's the plan. It's the only plan. There's not another plan. And it's for the fullness of time. Not only was it for the fullness of time for Christ to come, but that God will surmise all things, to unite all things in him. That verb there is very important because it's to recapitulate. In other words, to remake, to redeem. God is going to redeem all of everything that he has created in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And it was in him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined. There's that word, right? It's going to be difficult, but we'll deal with it. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm telling you, if there was any free will in there, we would have messed this up somewhere along the way. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. When you heard these truths, the gospel of your salvation and believed the Holy Spirit worked in you in a way to seal you, and it gives you the truth even today. That's why you, when, when I start talking about these truths, that's why you can say amen. When you understand these truths more greatly, that's why you can say with Paul, blessed be God, because the Holy Spirit we've been given as a down payment of an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled. It's waiting there for us that we, until the day we take possession, of it, even though it's 100% ours now, the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing all those things on our behalf, and all this is to the praise of his glory. And Paul says, for this reason I started to pray, because I want you to understand this, and this is why theology leads to doxology. I don't cease to give thanks for you. He says, I remember you always in my prayer. Why? So that God would give you, so that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Because it's in the better knowledge of him you become more satisfied in what he's done. It's in knowing God, Father, that you become a stronger Christian, a more satisfied Christian, a more sure Christian. In other words, these high exalted truths, which at some point if we get too involved in the city of man, seem like just icing on the cake. We can't eat too much. We can't have too if we study them, they become the truth. They become our reality because they are re our reality. Don't let this world take you out of that. This is what God is doing. He is uniting all things together in his son, Jesus Christ, and those things that he's uniting together is the church, beloved. It's us. As I said, there's some disconnect for me here because 
the enormity, the unbelievable enormity and magnitude of these words. These promises somewhat seem unreal, like not within reality of this place and what we experience here. It's as if Paul is telling us some fairy story that relates to all of our hearts because we all have a desire built into us because of sin, that we knew that the world was better than it was, that something has broken it, that we are a part of that brokenness, and that we're all waiting and it's irretrievably broken. In other words, we have no power among ourselves, and we prove that every day. We cry out for justice, yet our streets are filled with injustice. We prove every day that we can't fix it ourselves, but we know that it, it used to be better and it can be fixed, but we can't fix it, so we're all waiting for the Savior to ride in at the end. We talked about this a few weeks ago from Jerome Barz's book, Echoes of Eden. We all have echoes of Eden in our heart. We understand but will that ever happen? Could it ever be true? Are these grand exalted truths really promises? It will if these promises are true, but things, people are so bad and evil is so much in control of this world, it just seems unattainable sometimes. I understand that. But it's all about your focus, beloved. It's all about your focus. It's all about your focus. Because if these things are true, how then should we act as Christian brothers and sisters? How can man receive all the blessings, and how can this be made practical for us today? And I, I tell you, that's, it's a very simple truth, I believe. First, we need to just understand a few things from text in this scripture this morning as we kind of round out this outline of this chapter. First, we need to understand that material blessing will never be equal to spiritual blessing. Let me say that again. Material blessings will never be equal to spiritual blessings. Paul says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Material blessings will never be equal to spiritual blessings. And if I stop to serve the, the landscape just momentarily about me, everywhere I find that men are much more concerned about material blessings than they are spiritual blessings. Just stop for a moment, take a look around, and you'll see the depravity in the city of man grow as the luxuries of life increase. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go back to the horse and buggy days by no means, but as material blessings and comforts increase, man's appetite and desire for spiritual things decreases. And the church, beloved, cannot, cannot be a part of this. In the city of man, the way that people are reacting to the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade leads me to believe that the money being lost in the business of abortion is far more precious than the lives being lost to the atrocity of abortion. The city of man is a nation and a culture that has, has it easy. Luxury is a key part of its life, and one only needs to look at how we define poor here and how poor might be defined in a nation like India because it's night and day difference and Lord, please have mercy on the ones that spend more on their cell phones every month than they put in the offering plate, right? When we focus on the city of man, we get pulled into the city of man. We think that these truths, when we are susceptible to this as human beings in this culture, in this day, especially in the time of technology, we are so susceptible to being pulled into the culture of man so far too easily. And we long for the things of this world. And we get that out of balance. We, we take away the importance from something like Ephesians 1 and place more importance on uh, the new cell phone that just came out. Uh, am I the only sinner that does that here? Huh? Yeah. Collectively, as a nation, as a people, we spend more and more money on schools. The budgets, cost per student goes up and up, yet the results down and down. 
We build clinic after clinic to treat the addicted, yet the population of addicted adults grows exponentially. Especially in the last 10 years, we mutilate little boys and girls, believing that they've been misgendered and all in the name of progress in the city of man. In the city of man, homes are often void of moms because we live in homes and buy cars that require two incomes. And our young children are being raised at daycares, educated in government schools, and even the best daycares don't love your baby like you do. I promise that. And what they're teaching in school, well... We have gadgets, apps, gaming, toys, hobbies, and uh, homes full of the latest technology, and we have not withheld any good thing from ourselves. Yet we still want more because of all the good things and shiny objects can never begin to penetrate the true need of the human heart. Beloved, I, I don't know what type of life you're building for yourself. I don't know what percentage you give to the city of man and what percentage you give to the city of God, but I do know that if your end goal is focused solely on material blessings, that you will not be satisfied ultimately. And all the more I can guarantee you that spiritual blessings that are born of Christ and founded in heaven will not disappoint you. They cannot disappoint you. Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. I agree with him. The city of man will never outshine the city of God. Beloved, you may have all the money and power in the world, but if you get cancer tomorrow, you'll never be able to buy a treatment with all that money and power. Only Jesus can cure you of that. Beloved, you may have all the money and power in the world, but you'll never have the peace that comes that knowing your son or your daughter is saved in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will see them again someday because money can't buy those things. Material blessings are nowhere near what spiritual blessings are. What is the antidote then? I continually hold before you that the antidote to the world of man is to look into the city of God. To look into the promises of God that he's given us. Theology does lead to doxology. Focus on the city of God and his spiritual blessings will help you balance and rightly understand and live in the city of man. These promises of God are true and the antidote for your weak self-assurance of salvation is to focus directly, wholly, and centeredly on the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Because for the Christian, they are your reality. This is why Paul, again, in verses 14 through 23, begins to tell us, or excuse me, 15 through 23, because I've heard of your faith, I want God to even bless you more. See, it's like when you get a child a gift, right? You get them the greatest gift in the world. You think it's the greatest gift in the world, and I know this struggle as a parent. I, I, I want to give my kids good things. We all grew up wanting to give our kids good things and see our kids have nice things, but we also want our kids to appreciate those things. Well, as Christians, we've been given the greatest thing, Right? So it's not only that God has given us the greatest thing, but we never tire of this greatest thing because uh, if it's a gift that the world has given, like my children, they often grow tired, especially when the next greatest Xbox game comes out, the new version of, of, uh, of, uh, of NBA 2K 2022, 23, right? I love to play that with Malik. But we're done with 2022 when 2023 comes out, right? We're children like that, even me at at age 32, I get tired of those things. But you know what? The gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ, it's just the opposite. Because the more we look at it, the more we love it. 
The more we understand it, the better it becomes. The more we see it and the truth and the the theology, it just leads to us saying, blessed be God. And the ultimate of that, let me promise you, the ultimate of that is that when you crawl up to the end of your life and you've lived 80 whatever years in this world and you've been bogged down in the environmental damage that comes with everything that this world can heap upon a person all of his days of his life, even though you've had joy in it as a Christian, you're ready to go. You're like Paul saying, yeah, I've, I've got a lot to do in this world, but the next one is looking so, so precious. What's the first thing you're going to say when you stand at the knees of Jesus and, and bow before him? Blessed be God. It was all true. Hallelujah, God. You did every part of Ephesians. There wasn't one part that failed. It was all, in fact, it's all better than I could have ever imagined because now I've got sight that I didn't even have then. Blessed be God. Blessed be God for the victory. Blessed be God for what he's done in Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. That's so far the reality that our culture presents today. See the difference? There's a great gulf between the two. And if we get over here in the city of man, we're going to be bogged down in that. But brothers and sisters, turn to the city of God in the book of Ephesians to see the depth of the beauty of the theology there. I can't wait to teach it over the next few weeks. These promises of God are true. And they're the antidote for your weak self-assurance. When you're having a bad day and your knees hurt or the cancer diagnosis has brought back a bad report, Blessed be God because he's made these promises true. Blessed be God. Paul says you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. God did this out of his great love by which he's loved us with it. Even before we were alive, right, in Romans 5, he sent Jesus to die. We have redemption and forgiveness. All these things are true. This is what God is doing. This is the economy of God. This is the city of God. This is not the city of man. The city of man, and let me tell you something. I'm going to warn you very specifically here, and, and I want you to know this because I'm a man, and I want, to, I want to refute the city of man where it is wrong and love it well with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said something very important. Don't you feel sorry for the city of man? Again, minister the gospel of the city of man because there is no neutral Man, do we get in trouble when we think the word secular means something. There's either those who are with Christ and those who are, are against Christ. That's why when you play around in the city of man, you're playing with things you don't know what you're playing with. Luke eleven twenty three: whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do you see verses 9 and 10? They're as plain as day. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. That is what he's doing from the foundation of the world on. That is why he even created us. He wanted to have a relationship with us. Um, it is Piper and Calvin and several divines that, 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 that say these words that out of the overflow of the love and the fellowship and, the, and, the, and between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God created man to love and to love him back, to glorify him and to bring him glory. But man said, I don't want to do that. They sinned, they fell away, and God is redeeming us through his Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be back in that position before him to glorify him and to love him back. Verse 9, he's made known to us all of these things, his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. And this is the plan to unite all things on earth and in heaven in Jesus Christ. There is no other plan. 
The city of God will, the city of God will be eternal, and the city of man will burn eternal. Don't mix around. Don't mess around with secular or neutral. It doesn't exist. It's like playing with fire. So not only does our, our spiritual blessings greater than material blessings, not only does theology lead to doxology, but there's something very important. We have an inheritance. You see that. See it, but look at verse 11 with me. In him we have obtained an inheritance, that is, in Christ, because God predestined us according to his purposes, the one who works all things according to his will, right? We have an inheritance, right? But we are also an inheritance. Listen closely. This is how we're going to end today. We have an inheritance, but we are an inheritance. Go to verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I can't tell you how important it is to study your Bible. Remember I said, theology leads to doxology. The more you know about God, the more you know about God's plan and what he's doing, the more you can say with Paul, blessed be God. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that is your spiritual life, that you've been in tune, the Holy Spirit's work, the truth of God's come in, and you're beginning to know things that you've never been taught before, that you, God's maturing you, right? He's sanctifying Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Remember, I preached on that not too long ago here in March. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Oh, don't, don't just skip over that. We've got an inheritance, verse 11, and Jesus has got an inheritance. Who is Jesus' inheritance? Beloved, it's the church. It's you. It's us. It is the Lord coming down out of heaven into this cesspool of an earth, into this sin-stained world, and calling out of it, calling out, which we're going to look at tonight, saints, who will love him forever, and he's sanctifying them and making them holy and blameless before him and in love. And this is the plan before the foundation of the world. You are Jesus' inheritance. So you went from being who you were to who you're becoming, and it's all the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is doing this through his son Jesus and his perfect work. On the cross of Calvary. This is the plan for all time. From before the foundation of the world. To set apart a beautiful, pure bride for his son, Jesus. Think about yourself differently, please. God is doing this work in you. His promises never fail. This is the plan for all time from the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. Oh, yes, these are lofty truths. But, beloved, when you begin to understand them, your heart will exclaim with Paul's, Blessed be God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Beloved, my hope is that you understand the truth of Jesus Christ and what the work that God's doing in this world is. Isaiah says it, who hath believed our report in the 53rd chapter? Who has believed that report? That's the report of the gospel. It's the report of the good news. It's the report of the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world come. And to, the, and to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? 
For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we should see him, there is nothing in him that we should desire him. No beauty. He's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. Oh, but Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close today. Um, the realities of this truth are not even, I, I don't even... I feel not worthy, but as we go through them in the weeks to come, you will use your Holy Spirit to alive and, and these beloved believers. There is no church that's a mistake, Father. You are setting apart saints as the inheritance for your son's work and glorifying you. So as we go through these truths, as we hit these deep difficult, some of them, that you chose us, that you predestined us, that you adopted, that you're making us holy and blameless. They, they seem like not a part of reality even in this world, and I'm glad for that. They are a part of the city of God. And, Father, I know that as we work through these truths, that that same Holy Spirit who has marked us and secured us and given us the down payment, the assurance of the inheritance that's been given to us, he will continue to build these truths in us, and give us even more assurance. He will continue to do that work, that perfect work in us, and make us vessels fit. <laughs> You're doing that work in us through him, through these words, and through our time together. Father, it's a marvelous mystery. And as we'll learn in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, uh, the angels that were there in the beginning and saw you create everything that was created think that that's secondary compared to what you're doing in man. What an amazing truth. My prayer is that as we go from this place this morning that these people know the depth of their heart, that you've saved them, and that they stand on those promises now and forevermore.